you would, grab a Bible, turn with me to the book of Proverbs. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 25 to begin with. Proverbs chapter 25. Excuse me a moment while I get set up here. Proverbs chapter 25, and we'll be reading from there in just a moment. Let me say, it is good for me to see you. I've been thinking this morning about why we do this. Have you asked that question? Why are you here? And as I thought about that, I don't know everybody's thoughts and motives and things like that, but I can assume that there are some of us here because we have, uh, we have some things on our mind that we're wrestling with and struggling with, and, and we have a feeling that if we come to a place where God is focused on and we think about God and God's things and we open God's word and hear from God and worship God, something about those things or something in us will change and will be made better. I imagine that there are some of us who are here because this is our habit and this is what we do. It's Sunday, you go to church. And in some ways that's good because it's good to have good habits. But in that mindset, we still have work to do, don't we? To make sure that we're not worshiping just out of ritual and rote. But I imagine that uh, there might be some who are here because they have something that is uh, deep on their heart that needs to be fixed, maybe something that they've done or something that they're concerned about. And so in that way we come because we know that only in facing God and God's, the light of God's truth can we begin healing. And I just want to urge all of us to be focused on what we're doing here this morning And we're going to have an opportunity in a little while, if you have something you need to make known to this group, uh, for you to do that. Or if it's just something that you know is on your heart and you'd like to share with someone, one of your brothers and sisters, uh, to take this opportunity while we're gathered together to do that. But it just struck me how important it is that we be deliberate and conscious about what we're doing uh, at a time like this. So, I don't know, that may be a little heavy to start the sermon, uh, but that's what I've been thinking about this morning. It's good to see you, though, and appreciate your presence. And those who are visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. And that call goes out to you, too. If we can help you to draw closer to God or we can help you with something in your life, please let us know about that. Proverbs 25 and verse 16. Proverbs 25 and verse 16. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. Down in verse 27, it is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. One of the great things about the book of Proverbs is that it phrases things in a way that's really hard to argue with, isn't it? Okay, honey tastes good, but if you have too much of it, you're going to feel bad. Okay, well, it's hard to argue with that, right? Or the old principle about going over to your neighbor's house too often, you know, that that might be pleasant, it might be nice, but eventually you're going to wear out your welcome. That's hard to argue with. And in the same way, he comes to a conclusion down at that last verse we read, it's verse 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So he is taking principles about life and trying to help us understand some character needs that we have. So we need to be able to say, honey is good, but maybe I've had enough. Or going to my neighbor's house is good, but maybe I've been there too much. And that if we don't have that ability to tell ourselves no, to control ourselves, we're like a city without walls. And in the ancient world, that just meant 
that a city without walls was ripe for the picking. For any army that passed by, any bandits that passed by, they were just going to go in whenever they wanted. And the principle is, it's just a matter of time. When we don't have self-control, maybe that has to do with our tongue. Maybe that has to do with sexual desire. Maybe that has to do with our appetites. Maybe it just has to do with our temper generally. Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter what the impulse is. Somewhere, somehow, we are ripe for the picking. It is a matter of time because we don't have the ability to control ourselves. So this year, our theme is the idea of house rules. That is, we're talking about principles for our homes and what Christians should be living at at home. And we've gone through a number of these things. We're in the ninth month of the year, and we've gone through a number of lessons and principles that our homes are based on and that we live out in our homes. Home is a safe place. We respect each other. We tell the truth. We speak with love, no gossip allowed, we take responsibility, we deal with our problems, and then last month we talked about we lead by serving. So we're trying to say what can we do to help ourselves, our mates, our children to develop Christian character at home that then becomes the foundation of our churches, of our society, and the broader world. So this morning we're going to focus on this idea that we control ourselves, and I just want to make this a simple idea. I just want to talk about briefly the Bible's teaching on self-control And then I want to give some some helpful parameters in which we can live those things out and teach those things in our homes. So the first thing I want to say is that the Bible talks about the origin of self-control being the idea of liberation. You are probably familiar with the fact that in the New Testament, our relationship with sin is usually described as slavery. And I want to talk about how if we're going to talk about and practice self-control, that has to begin with the idea that we have been set free from sin. Let's go over to Titus chapter 3. Titus 3. And see how Paul talks about this. And then we're going to refer to a number of passages that we're not going to turn to this morning uh, that will just sort of reinforce this point. Titus chapter 3. This is verse 3. Titus 3, verse 3. Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says there's a before and after picture. Before, we ourselves once were hateful, hating one another. And he says there in verse 3, slaves to various passions and pleasures. That's who we were. So the question is, what changed? How did we stop being slaves to our passions and pleasures? Is that something where we just decided, you know what, I've had enough, I'm just going to quit all this stuff. And so by some Herculean force of will, we made ourselves different. No, that's not the message of the gospel. In fact, Paul doesn't say that. He says in verse 4, but when God did something, when the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. He saved us from our slavery. He brought us out. He set us free. That's what changed. So let me just run that through the New Testament lens for you for a moment. In Romans 7, Paul talks about how he used to be a slave to sin. In fact, he says, I was sold under sin. And that's a very vivid description. He talks about, I wanted to do right, but I I didn't have the ability to do it. So I had this desire, but then I found myself sinning again and again. And he said, I was a slave. I was sold under sin. Well, what changed with Paul? How did Paul get out of that situation? Was it just that he said, you know what? I'm going to do better. This time it's going to stick. 
No, it was not about Paul doing anything different. Paul specifically says it's through Jesus who set him free to live in new life. In Romans 1, Paul talks about the descent of the Gentiles. It's a spiral. It's a downward spiral. It begins by them not being thankful, not giving glory to God. But it it progresses, or you might say regresses, into worse and worse things. So that eventually they are in this state that Paul calls a debased mind. So far from God. What breaks the spiral? What gets them out of the downward spiral? Well, it's not them. It's God. God sets them free from that so that once they acknowledge their sin, Jesus can liberate them from their sin and they can become different people. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that some of the Corinthians used to be all these lists of awful things, thieves and covetous and adulterers and homosexuals. And he says, such were some of you. But what changed, Paul? He says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. God did something for you you couldn't do for yourselves. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. But what changed? How do we get out of being dead? He made us alive in Christ Jesus. So over and over again, the pattern of the New Testament is that we are set free from sin. That is not something that we do for ourselves. It is something that God does for us. Now, what I want you to get, and the reason I say that so many different times in different ways, is I want you to know that self-control is not natural. Our natural state is to be out of control, is to be slaves to sin, to forfeit the right to do right and the ability to do right. So I am not saying that we are incapable of controlling ourselves. That is not what I'm saying. I am saying that when we serve sin we forfeit that ability and we become slaves of sin. Sin is in charge instead of us being in charge under Christ. And so in order for us to even begin to practice self-control in our everyday lives, we need to be set free from our sins. We need to become no longer slaves. And this is what I tell people when they come and say, I have a problem. It's what I tell young men who are struggling with pornography. And they say, you know, I want to do right, but I find myself doing this again and again. And usually by the time I talk to them, the problem has become so big that they understand this is bigger than something I can handle on my own. And I just say, you need to be set free. This is not an issue that is simply about what you want. It's gotten bigger than you. You are a slave to sin. It is what I tell those who are addicted to alcohol. This is a problem that is bigger than your will. You need to be set free. It is what I would say to those who are still struggling with their speech or their appetites. And it's just simply the matter that you need to be set free. You can change. You can become different. You can be in control. But we need to understand that the gospel says that's not our effort. It is something we have to be given. We must be liberated. Now the question I hope you're asking is if we're talking about this in our homes, how can we teach that to our kids? In fact, I think for most of us, the goal is with our children not to ever let them become slaves of sin so that they don't have to worry about being set free from sin and having this whole process that we've had to go through. Well, let me just say it this way. I do believe it is entirely appropriate to encourage and expect self-control in our children. I do believe that. And I think that teaching cannot start too young, as I've said before in this series. But I I think probably at this stage, in talking about the liberation idea and the idea of the gospel, this is something 
This is something that parents need to be talking about with children. That we need to talk honestly about our sin. Not saying that I need to tell my children everything I've ever done wrong. But I do need to tell them that the reason I am the man that I am is because Jesus set me free from my sins. They need to hear the gospel from my mouth about my life. And then, and then that teaching can also involve the idea that self-control is a blessing. Did you notice the idea of liberation is good? It means I'm no longer what I used to be and the things that I hated but I kept doing. Instead, I'm someone different. And so we need to be teaching our children that self-control is not just a restriction. It's a lot like that honey example we started with, right? Okay, that, that the inability to tell yourself no means you only go into trouble. You're like a city without walls. You're like the man who can't make himself stop going to his neighbor's house or who eats so much honey that he ends up vomiting all the time. The other thing I would say before we leave this point is that when we talk about self-control in the home, this is something that we should all in our homes be growing in. A conversation we can have that says, you know what, I'm getting better about this. I'm working on this. I'm moving toward this. And so when something is out of control, that we're able as mothers and fathers, that we're able even as children to parents to say, wait a minute, should we be doing this? Wait a minute, should this really be this way? And to say we need to be growing toward better self-control. That's what God's will for us is. Now let's talk a little bit about the character of self-control and the idea of ruling our spirits. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1. It's just a few pages back from Titus. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 6. So the, the context here is Paul is writing Timothy... And it appears that Timothy is having maybe some doubts or some insecurities. And Paul is writing to bolster his faith and encourage him. He says this in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So instead of being weak and tentative, he says, Timothy... God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but a power and love and self-control. Yours might have something like a sound mind. And the word here is the word that's the basis of our word for self-control. This is interesting to me because it reverses the thinking that typically goes on in our world. And it says instead of self-control being about what you don't do, this is about self-control being a function of power. That I am in control and so I am strong. And that God didn't want us to be weak and fearful, but instead to be powerful over our own habits, desires, spirits. Self-control, please hear me, is about becoming more powerful. Under the rule of Christ, I am in control of me. It's a very easy thing to learn. In fact, children learn this at a very young age, although I think even as adults we struggle to remember it. And that is, you cannot control other people. You cannot control your circumstances and environment. The only thing you can control in your life is you. But how helpless a feeling if you can't even control yourself. And how destructive if instead of working on controlling ourselves, we only complain about everybody else. 
and how awful the world is. And why aren't they doing that? And why did they do that to me? But we can't even control us. The Bible reverses that and says, no, the only thing that matters is the only thing I can handle, which is I need to rule my spirit. Now, you might recognize that language, ruling my spirit, because it comes from this passage. It's another Proverbs passage, Proverbs 16, 32. It says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. I would encourage you to take a minute just chewing on that verse. I'll help you, give you some things to chew on with it. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. You know the people that we would admire for being strong and powerful and impressive. He says it's better to be slow to anger because there is a discipline involved there that makes you better to discipline yourself than to be able to conquer others. And then he says, he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. You think about taking a city. All the planning and strategy that goes into that, deep thought, careful thought, Okay, and you're going to be an excellent general. You'll probably be an excellent warrior. You go take a city. Everybody gives you applause. You're a great conqueror. It would be better if you could rule your spirit than if you can dominate other people. And this proverb is intriguing to me because it takes all of that, that admiration we have for skill and intelligence and physical power, and it says what's better is when you can take all that skill and intelligence to your inner battles and you can rule yourself. In fact, I would suggest he is saying it may be easier to go fight other people than to just rule yourself and to rule your own spirit. So, the character of self-control is to say what we want to develop in ourselves and our children and our spouses and our brothers and sisters is the ability to say, I am in control of me. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, this is the passage that Brother Don read this morning. <clears throat> now this is in a context in 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul is talking about how he is willing to forfeit some of the things that matter most to him, his rights, so that he can bless and benefit others and so that he can preach the gospel to others. And he talks about that in terms of self-control. I'm able to tell myself no about things that might get in my way, the way of my goal. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So he uses the picture of athletics, and he says, this is a very simple principle every athlete knows. He says in verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They know that if they want to achieve what they are going to seek to achieve in athletics... There are some things that they can't do. And Paul says in the same way, verse 27, I discipline my body and keep it under control. That word means to make it my slave. I become master of my body. I am ruling my spirit. I'm in control. My body is not in control of me. I am in control. 
My circumstances are not in control. I am in control. Other people are not in control. So it is never a situation where someone said the wrong thing to me and I was just, I couldn't handle it. Or that guy cut me off in traffic. I mean, he shouldn't have done that. Or, you know, the way the economy is, I just don't know any other way to do it. And on and on and on. We can blame people. We can blame circumstances. And we can blame, you know, I really wanted it. I really wanted to eat that. I really wanted to go there. Is our body in control or are we in control? Are we ruling our spirits? And so we begin to apply that perspective throughout life. Am I ruling my spirit with regard to my anger? So that when I'm angry, I don't sin. We're going to talk more about anger next month. But anger is a way our emotions get control of us over our spirit. And we do things that we know we should not do because we feel certain things. And we certainly feel justified in that. Or are we ruling our spirits with regard to our sexual desire? That there might be things that we desire that we should not have, should not be focused on, should not be thinking about, should not be pursuing. Do we rule our spirit about food and drink so that we can say, you know what? I'm pushing the honey away. I've had enough. Are we ruling our spirit about our words so that even though we would really like to say this and maybe they even deserve it, we're able to say no because we're in control, not just our emotions and our thoughts. Am I ruling my spirit about doing good? That sometimes there are things that I know need to be done that I don't really feel like doing, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm in control and I have a goal that is more important than how I feel in the moment. Are we ruling our spirit about our commitments, the things that we have promised to do or that we have made a commitment to do in the past? I want you to see the irony here. Our world tells us that self-control, what I just described, they would say that's slavery. You know, you can't do all the fun things you want to do. Well, in a sense, that's right. But the Bible says self-control is true freedom. The world says you can't do what you want to do. And the Bible says, you know, when you do what you want to do, you are primed for a fall. And we've all experienced that. The world says, oh, you have to say no to yourself. You always have to tell yourself no. And the Bible says, no, now you can say no, where before you couldn't. And I want to think a little bit about that idea of true freedom. Is self-control slavery or is it freedom? Look again at verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Athletes know that... Don't lose the thought. Athletes know that you must limit yourself if you want to achieve a goal. Do you know you won't find professional athletes who smoke cigarettes... Because if they smoke cigarettes, they won't be professional athletes that long. Because you can't do both. You can't be in the best physical shape and do things that you might even want to do. I'm sure there are tons of athletes who would like to smoke, but they don't do it because they know that won't work for my goal. And so they limit themselves and they say, no, I can't go here, do this, eat that, be there, because they want something. Now, ask the question, are athletes slaves? 
Well, in a way they are. They're slaves to that goal. They want that goal, so they're going to do whatever it takes to get that goal. And yet in another way, they are free to achieve something that people who cannot tell themselves no could never achieve. So self-control becomes a key to them. Am I ruling my spirit? This is the question that should permeate our homes. Is everyone in control of themselves? So I want to give some advice about how I think this might play out in a home. And I get nervous at this stage in the lesson because what I'm about to say is going to make it sound like uh, in the Hudgens home we got this all figured out. And uh, we're all in control of ourselves all the time, all five of us, and maybe even the pets. And uh, that we never have any difficulties or issues with this. And, and since I've got it figured out, I'm up here pontificating about that. Please, I, I don't mean to say that at all. These are our goals in our home. We don't always live up to them, and I certainly don't. To pursue self-control in our home, we practice limits. Things have limits. There are limits to how long we're going to play. There are limits to how long we're going to be awake. There are limits to things because we want the ability to say, that's enough. Not just because the parents say that's enough, but we want our children to learn to say to themselves, that's enough. I've done this long enough, and there's a time, even if I would still like to keep going, I'm going to stop. We practice in our home rhythms. There is a rhythm that God has put into life that is, for example, you work before you play. And that is a rhythm that is important for children. I want my children to learn that we work and finish our responsibilities before we play. But it's also an important rhythm for me. If I play before I work, I might never work. I enjoy play more than I enjoy work. But... It's a rhythm to life. I want my children to develop that rhythm. I need that rhythm. And so we practice that rhythm. We practice the rhythm of we pray before we eat. We practice the rhythm of this is what we do before we do the enjoyable fun thing. In our home, we practice boundaries. That is, there are boundaries about things that belong to other people. If it is theirs, it is not yours. If it is their space, it is not your space. You cannot be in their space unless they are okay with you being in their space. There are little things that are perfect occasions for developing self-control and ruling our spirit. In fact, I think it may be that the little things are the more important ground in which self-control is developed and learned. Little things like the ability to do what you say and be where you say you're going to be. That even when that might be uncomfortable or awkward or we get excited and we're doing something else, we forget the commitment we've made, self-control to say, wait, I gave my word, I'm going to go do it even though I don't want to. The really difficult part of developing self-control in the home is that I can undermine it all as the father by not doing it myself. And I have little voices that remind me when I don't. If parents don't practice self-control, then their teaching about self-control has very little impact. So I would encourage us to think about what are we teaching and how are we developing this in our children. And then 
Maybe there are some who don't have children. Maybe you're married, you don't have children, or the children are out of the house. There are still these issues of self-control that impact in a marriage and that we can help one another with to be able to say, I'm going to help you live up to the goals you've set for yourself. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to hold you accountable. We're going to work on these things together because as we get sharper and, and better toward our goals, we draw closer to God's will of self-control in our lives. The third thing is the goal of self-control, which is the idea of eternal life. I noticed this as I studied through this. There is a link between the self-control passages and eternal life. Look at this in 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, look again at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Do you hear Paul's thought about the future? He talks about the, the wreath or the crown. He talks about, I'm not running aimlessly. I know where I'm headed. And then in verse 27, I don't want to be disqualified. I don't want to send other people to eternal life and then I don't get there myself. So he says, I discipline my body. It's about me and what I can control because of eternal life. There is a verse in Philippians 3. Uh, I remember it. I can almost always quote it because my mom put it on our mirror when I was a teenager. Where Paul says in Philippians 3, I press toward the mark for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And, of course, Paul is using the athletic words again to press is to run fast. I'm going for the tape because I want the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The goal. We control ourselves now. We push hard now because we want the prize. So what we are saying is if we want eternal life bad enough, we work now to control ourselves. Someone, when they hear that, someone is thinking, oh, are we talking about you know, salvation by works? You just work hard enough you can go to heaven. That is not what I mean. And I don't believe that's what these passages that connect eternal life or the prize and self-control are trying to say. I believe the idea is you don't want to get sucked back into sin. We've been there before and we don't want to go back. Turn with me over to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2. In 2 Peter 2, this is talking about some false teachers that uh, Peter says are going to arise among them. 2 Peter 2 and verse 19, it says, They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. You hear in the language of Peter that there is a concern that we would be overcome or entangled again. So this is not the idea that as a Christian, you know, we might slip up and make a mistake and then repent of it. This is the idea that we go back into being consumed with sin again. We become slaves again. And he says that's the concern. So brethren, if that's possible, and we have experienced that before, we have been slaves and then not only that, we've also seen people we know and love become slaves again. We've seen them go back into the world, haven't we? 
So if we've seen that, and we know it personally, and we've seen it in those we love, how can we not be motivated to say, I don't want to go back there again. I will not toy with this. I won't go back to sin, and I can't. Not that it's not possible. I know me, and I know I can't do it. Turn back a page to 2 Peter 1. In 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 5, Peter writes, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter gives a list of things to add to your faith. One of those, of course, is self-control. This is a part of who we are becoming as disciples of Jesus. More and more discipline, more and more ruling our spirits. But did you notice in verse 9 that when we lack these things, we have forgotten that we were cleansed from our former sins? So this whole part of our lesson where we talked about liberation, we talked about being slaves, you know, that, that's just, we just lose it. We forget it. And we think maybe, you know, I'm strong enough, I'm good enough, I've been a Christian long enough, I can handle it. And then we go right back into sin. And we are overtaken again, and we've forgotten. But if we do practice these things, verse 10 and 11 says, we will never fall, and there will be an entrance into the eternal kingdom richly, abundantly provided for us. So you might ask, well, what is going on with this point about eternal life? I want to be very clear as to what I'm saying and what I believe the Bible is teaching us that's important for you and me. And that is that this describes a perspective shift that is at the heart of all self-control. All self-control has the question, am I going to live on impulse right now or am I going to wait for the future? Am I going to have short-term goals or long-term goals? All self-control issues say, am I going to do what feels good, what I'd really like to do for this moment, or will I surrender the moment to the future? That is the Christian struggle in a nutshell, isn't it? We're waiting on something that's in the future. It hasn't happened yet. And so we have millions of decisions that involve that short term, can I have this pleasure or this momentary relief or am I going to be a person, a man or woman of character and look forward? And can I suggest that there are a lot of ways we can practice that, that shift of perspective at home? It's the shift in perspective that asks the question, are we going to spend this money or save this money? Same question, isn't it? It's the question that asks, Am I going to be patient with this person now in hopes that they grow and become someone different? Or am I just going to let them have it and just destroy this relationship? Am I going to work hard on my schoolwork now in this moment or go play video games? And if I work hard on the schoolwork now, am I going to focus on the fact that, you know, I'll get the good grade or eventually I'll be able to succeed in something in this work? I want to suggest to you that those small gains 
are vital for establishing that perspective. That perspective, by the way, is not just about eternity. It's also a a right now perspective, right? How often do we, who are adults, have to live that way where we plan for the future and look forward and say no to ourselves now for some future benefit? We do that all the time. To teach our children to do that is to prepare them for not only their adulthood, but also for the Christian faith. It seems to me that in our homes, we need to celebrate the small gains in this. Even the smallest. You know what? I was going to buy this, Dad, but I think I'm going to wait. Yes, good. That we don't have to spend what we have just because we have it. We don't have to eat it just because it's in front of our face. We don't have to do it because we feel like it right now. And to say we can learn to rule our spirit in pursuit of something better. And that we can celebrate character. That, you know, when we do that, we become a patient person. And when we do that and we have that patience with people or with the situation, we become harder workers. And we say, you know what, to our children, you're doing a good job of working for the future. And that's awesome. In our homes, we can encourage the goal of self-control and focus attention on the goal instead of focusing on what we're giving up in the moment. Keeping our eyes forward, we can make self-control not a chore, but a blessing. So I have just a few questions and suggestions in closing. May I ask you, what are your self-control struggles? And are you working on them? How are you doing? May I remind you, acknowledging a problem is not the same as fighting it. And there might be more that needs to be done than just saying, this is my issue. May I encourage you? Jesus died to set you free from sin so that you don't have to live in it anymore. And you can move forward. You can be set free. And may I tell you that we are always here, ready to help anyone who is seeking to live a life in line with Jesus' teachings. Because we're seeking eternal life too. And we want to take as many people as we can along with us. So we're going to sing a song. And it is what we dub the invitation song. Because it is an invitation to you. If you are ready to walk with Jesus. And to be set free from your sins. By his blood and his sacrifice. You can begin that walk this morning. By putting your faith in him. Turning away from your sins. And being buried with him in baptism. Or if there's some need that you have, something that you need to let us know about, we can pray with you and for you. If there is a way we can help you, please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.